Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am Sarah and I'm here today with my co-host Darcy. Say hi, Darcy. Hey, guys. We've got some great topics to talk about with you guys today, but we're kind of going to throw in an update on an earlier story that we sort of covered off on. We talked about the Fiji couple and the Dominican Republic couples that have passed away while traveling. And there was just a brand new article this morning called Seventh American Tourist Dead in Dominican Republic While Celebrating Her Birthday. So it appears that yet another tourist has died in the Dominican Republic while they're um, hanging out. She was a New York resident, 53 years old. She died at the Excellence Resort in Punta Cana. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Um, Cox arrived in the country June 5th to celebrate her birthday and was expected home on Thursday, but she never returned. Her son said she died Monday, according to CBS News, and the U.S. State Department confirmed she had died from a heart attack, the same cause of death as most of the other victims so far. So it's my understanding that when you were reading that other article that you said there was some respiratory issues, not necessarily a heart attack. Yeah, I've heard heart attack, I think, in only one of the other ones, but the other, I know the couple, the the newly engaged couple from Maryland and the woman who died on the same day she got there, those were both reported to be uh, respiratory disorders and pulmonary edema. Wow. So this particular woman died of a heart attack. So I don't necessarily think that is a suspicious thing. Do you still find it suspicious? Heart attack? No. But I'm, I, I definitely just don't believe that two people in the same hotel room died on the same night from the same thing, a pulmonary edema. Yeah, and especially after they were reported to all have been sort of taking drinks from the same sort of area. Yeah, and then you had that one couple that they left and went to their doctor, and their, their doctor told them it was probably some kind of pesticide that they were breathing in. So I think that... It just sounds very fishy to me and that, I don't know, I think I just want a little bit more confirmation from maybe a second source medical examiner or something. Yeah, but it sounds as though they're not releasing the body until mm-hmm. they, they're not. <laughs> until they finish and their you research. Have the FBI and you have the FBI is just now getting into it, but everything I've seen from the State Department is they're saying that these are not suspicious at all and there's no concerns or anything, but I don't know, like I'm reading these stories and I definitely have second thoughts about booking a trip to the DR. I mean, well, it sounds like they, number one, the state department doesn't want to freak people out. They want people to know they're safe and secure when they're traveling because they don't want people to stop traveling, obviously. But at the same time, how much are they hiding and how much of the investigation is going to be delayed, inhibited, or prevented by holding onto these bodies for longer than necessary so that another person could potentially do an autopsy. Right. And are they going to let any third party, like forensic pathologist from the U.S. come in and do anything like that? It just sounds I mean, a little shady. You can shady. go on the State Department website and it'll tell you travel advisories. So yes, they don't want to freak anybody out, but they also do want people to have all the information. So it is, it's just, it's, it's weird. Like, I don't know of another way to explain it. It's just weird. My story today that I have chosen to speak on and just a little background, Darcy and I had initially chosen these stories because we were going to cover off on them in an interview that we did with a crime scene specialist. 
However, we found out at a later date that she was unable to comment on specific details of other people's cases because that is against her department policy. So we sort of reevaluated and decided that we still kind of wanted to talk over these particular cases because we find them interesting. So these are the two cases that came from that um, research that we initially did. So the, the one that I'm going to be talking about today is the murder of Jasmine Fiore. So we had selected San Diego cases because the crime scene investigator that we were interviewing was in San Diego. Stay tuned for that episode. It will be coming out most likely next week. And it is an awesome interview with a crime, a real life crime scene investigator who is very, very interesting. So the case that I selected to talk about today is the murder of Jasmine Fiore. And just a little background first, it happened August 15th, 2009. Her body was discovered then. She had been strangled and stuffed into a suitcase. What's interesting about this case and what initially drew me to it and made me remember it was the fact that her remains had been mutilated to prevent recognition. And there is not a whole ton of information about this particular case, believe it or not, even though it is relatively recent. But the stuff that I do have here was that she was identified by the serial numbers of her breast implants. She was approximately 28 years old at the time of her death, which is so, so, so young. But I find Mm -hmm. it interesting that they were unable to identify her by anything other than the serial numbers on her breast implants. Yeah, that, yeah, there were definitely like countermeasures that he took so that it would take them a long time to identify her. And frankly, it was very clever of the medical examiner to go that route because he had no other, no other options. It just goes to show that nowadays they really pull out the stops when it comes to using different techniques that may not have been either been available years ago or that may not even been, have been considered 10, 15, 20 years mm-hmm. ago. Her husband, a former reality TV contestant, Ryan Alexander Jenkins, was the only suspect and was formally charged with the murder. He was then found dead on August 23rd, 2009 in a hotel room in British Columbia. He was 32 years old at the time of his death. So I think that effectively put a stop to the investigation, so to speak, because he was dead and they knew at that point he's done this. But a little bit of background on Jasmine. She was born Jasmine Lepore in 1981. Her parents divorced when she was about eight years old and she was raised by her mother in Bonnie Dune, California. In her youth, she enjoyed playing football and worked at a local grocery store before she decided that she was into modeling. She then was a swimsuit model who frequently worked as a body-painted model at parties for entertainment. She appeared at shows in Las Vegas and acted in commercials for adult phone lines and bathing suits. She had also obtained a real estate license and was planning to open a gym and a personal training center. So she had some pretty varied interests. It sounds like she had a pretty ambitious goal for herself in the future. And she was going places and doing things. Right. A strong work ethic for sure. Absolutely. And according to Fiore's friend of a year and a half, Fiore had a long standing, but intermittent serious relationship with another man with whom she wanted to settle down. She had a couple of other men. At the time she was murdered. Yes. She had a couple of other men before she got married that she was going to settle down with. And there has been some speculation and rumors going around that she had continued to talk to those gentlemen even after she married Mr. Jenkins. Um, And she was also engaged 
to one of these gentlemen for a short period of time before she married her current husband that she had at the time of her death. Fiore met real estate investor. It's interesting that people just call themselves real estate investors. I don't necessarily think he was a real estate investor. He was a part-time reality TV guy. Yeah, like, can't you call yourself that if you bought a house? Exactly. Like, you've invested in a house, and so (laughs) therefore you're a real estate investor? (laughs) You're a real estate investor. It just sounds like a bunch of bullshit that people make up to make themselves sound a lot better than they actually are. Like an entrepreneur? Pretty much. So she met this gentleman, Ryan Jenkins, at a Las Vegas casino shortly after Jenkins filmed Megan Wants a Millionaire. Did you ever watch that show? No, I... I, I have very strong feelings about reality TV. I hate it because <laughs> it, I, it just, it makes me dumber to watch it. But part two is because for whatever reason, the production value or however, every single reality episode, if they have like a marathon, you get stuck into watching an entire day. Like it's somehow you can't turn away from it, but you're like, God, I'm getting so dumb right now. It's like watching a fucking so train no, I just don't even start. <laughs> it's like, yeah. what? You just can't look away. It's awful. Yeah. In any case, he had been on that show as one of the contestants. It was a ridiculous show on VH1 that pretty much had no point and was obviously scripted. Just that really gross, tacky, cheap reality type television that obviously drew mm-hmm. people in because they filmed a number of different shows with this particular gal Two days later, (laughs) two days after they met. So they met, and then two days later, March 18th, 2009, they married at the Little White Chapel on the Las Vegas Strip. So clearly there was a lot of thought and planning and preparation and serious connection that these two (laughs) did before they got married. According to court records, Jenkins was charged in 2009 in Nevada with battery constituting domestic violence for hitting Fiore in the arm. Oh, Christ. So this gentleman that she had previously been seeing was present and said that Jenkins and Fiore were arguing over her kissing this man that she had been with prior to being with Ryan Jenkins. So obviously Ryan Jenkins was very, very possessive and not enjoying her previous relationships and also violent. Jenkins was set to go on trial in December for that assault charge. So evidently he hit her in the arm over her potentially or possibly kissing this previous flame of hers, and it caused her to fall into a nearby swimming pool. He was set to go on trial for that particular charge. However, the pair had reconciled before Fiora's death and were reportedly traveling to San Diego for a poker game. And this is kind of where this case gets a little bit tricky. The young girl's mother claims the two fought frequently and that Jenkins was jealous of Fiora's former relationships and ongoing relationships with ex-boyfriends. But the father of Ryan Jenkins says that she would disappear for days at a time and lie about where she had been. So so it's her fault. Got it. He's starting to try to say that, sh- that his son was justified in being jealous and angry about right. her situation. And hitting her. They'd been together for freaking two days before they got married. Right. So <laughs> it's like, really... If you get married after two days, you're not allowed to be upset with someone for their prior relationships or their actions <laughs> during that course of time because it's not like you met them and were with them for a period of time to make sure that you were going to be okay with how they lived their life. Right. So the family of Jasmine claims that the 
they had annulled the marriage in 2009, but there are no court records in either Nevada or California where they last lived. But the events that lead up to Jasmine's death are investigators reported that Jenkins and Fiore checked into the La Auberge Hotel in Del Mar, San Diego, which is a very upscale and beautiful hotel in Del Mar, California. I've been there seven. I've driven by it numerous times. I've never been there, though. I've been in there multiple times. I've never stayed there, but it's a beautiful hotel. So they checked in August 13th, 2009. They were attending a poker tournament. This was a charity fundraiser that they were going to. They checked into the hotel, but then they went to the Del Mar Hilton for this poker tournament. Surveillance video captured the couple leaving the Hilton at about 2.30 a.m. on August 14th. The couple were later seen at the Ivy Hotel, a nightclub in downtown San Diego. God, so, that's a bar drive at 1.30 a.m. Exactly. Well, they left the Hilton at 2.30. So what were they doing at the Ivy? Oh, Doesn't that close down at like 2? I think some of the ones in downtown, don't they say open till like 5? Uh, maybe. Maybe that's why that is. But it was confusing to me because I was like, I thought nightclubs closed down at 2 a.m. I think it depends on where you are. I never spent that much time in, in, in downtown at the gas lamp because I hate hated it so i don't know for those of you who are unfamiliar with san diego the gas lamp is an area downtown san diego where there are a lot of nightclubs bars and restaurants it is the place where young people and when i say young the people I mean, you mean like college students and people who just turned 21 go to party there are right. a ton of college students in that particular area and tourists that are young as well that go down there to party, get drunk and act stupid, which is one area. And Navy SEALs. <laughs> yes. One area that I tend to avoid for that precise reason. Around 2.30 a.m. they were seen leaving the Hilton on August 14th. So at about 4.30 a.m. Jenkins returned to the hotel in Del Mar that they were staying at alone. At that point, and what do you, what would you say? That's about like a twenty minute drive, right? With no traffic, about four thirty a.m. Yeah, exactly, that is about a twenty minute yeah. drive. So like that's a haul to go. It sounds like the two of them left this poker tournament pretty late and went downtown yeah. to hang out for a little bit, and then he returned to the hotel alone, and she was nowhere in sight. She was never seen alive again. He left the hotel, the La Berge, at around nine a.m. that next morning. So my hmm. thought is, like, when did he supposedly do this killing? They were seen leaving the Hilton so we, around 2.30, and they were later seen at the uh, Ivy Hotel. And then 4.30 a.m. is when he returned to the hotel. Fiore's body was discovered, but not identified, on August 15th at around 7 a.m. She was badly beaten and crushed inside a suitcase in a dumpster in an alley in Buena Park, California. So her body went to the Orange County coroner. So that's like Orange County, LA. I'm thinking, I'm thinking that he killed her sometime between this, the Ivy Hotel and when he went back to the hotel, to his hotel, right? But obviously that's not when he dismembered her and stuff because that just seems like it would take a lot longer. So I think that he may have left her in his car and then drove up to LA. So that is around Anaheim. So it's Orange County in between LA and Orange County. He checked out on the 14th. They found her body on the 15th. So this is what my thought is. He killed her on the 14th, somewhere between 2.30 and 4.30 a.m., put her in the car, kept her in the car, dismembered her body, and then disposed of her the next day on the 15th. And that's when they found the body. Right, that's my guess, too. 
But she was found crushed inside a suitcase in a dumpster in an alley in Buena Park, California. According to the police, her teeth and fingers had been removed before her naked body was stuffed into the suitcase. She had been strangled. Authorities believe the mutilation was an attempt to impede identification. So it took them a few days, but they ended up identifying her remains using the serial numbers on her breast implants. So essentially, the Orange County Coroner's Office reported Fiore had died a couple hours before her body was found. So evidently, he had not killed her on the 14th. He had killed her on the 15th. But where, I don't know how this all went down. If she was dead only a few hours before they found her on the 15th, then when did he kill her? They found her on the 15th at 7 a.m. So he must have killed her sometime in the wee hours of the 14th and put her in the car. But where was she, though, the morning of the 14th when he checked out of the hotel? They're saying she would have been still alive at that point. This is why this case is so perplexing to me. The Orange County Coroner's Office reported Fiore had died a couple of hours before her body was found on the 15th at 7 a.m. So she had to have died sometime in the early morning hours of August 15th. And he left Del Mar at what, 9? The 14th at 9 a.m. The day before? Uh Uh-huh. Fiore's white Mercedes was found abandoned in a parking lot in West Hollywood, about a mile from the penthouse that Fiore shared with Jenkins in Fairfax, L.A. Fairfax District, L.A. Police reported there was a significant amount of blood and some evidence of hair pulling. Jenkins reported Fiore missing August 15th at 8.55 p.m. He told police he had last seen her around 8.30 p.m. on August 14th at their home in Los Angeles. Jenkins said they had gone to San Diego for a poker tournament and that after returning, she dropped him off for the evening, left to do errands, and never returned. But we know that that's not true because he checked out of the hotel alone. Mm -hmm. So maybe they took separate cars to the hotel and didn't drive together. Yeah, but they got well, he got back at 4.30 in the morning alone, too. So maybe they'd gotten into a fight and split up. Who knows? But there's more here. It says around 9 a.m. on August 16, 2009, the day after reporting Fiore missing and after spending time packing, Jenkins was seen leaving their penthouse for the last time. Police said he left, for, he left Los Angeles and went to Nevada to pick up a speedboat. August 17th, when contacted by the police, he was said to be in Utah and was heading to Canada. He told them he was going there to resolve some immigration issues. So at that point, they're not suspecting him yet, but I'm sure he's on the list. So is he, is he Canadian? It sounds like it. On August okay. 18th, Fiore's body was identified and the murder was first reported. On the afternoon of August 19th, Jenkins called his father, who informed him Fiore had been found murdered. The Whatcom County Sheriff's Department received a witness report of Jenkins' black BMW SUV. So evidently, it was seen driving towards the U.S.-Canadian border... Police later found the BMW SUV and an empty boat trailer in a marina in Blaine, Washington, which is near the border of Canada, for those of you who do not know. The engine was still warm. At the time, Jenkins was only a person of interest in the investigation. He had not been charged, but Canadian authorities had been alerted to watch for him and confirmed that the boats patrolling northwestern Washington waters looking for Jenkins as early as August 19th. So... On August 19th, the man matching Jenkins' description was seen piloting his boat into a marina in Port Roberts, where Jenkins' stepmother lives. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police announced they believe Jenkins crossed into Canada sometime between August 19th and 20th via boat. was when he crossed in. On August 20th, they charged him with her murder and issued an arrest warrant. Around 6 p.m. on August 20th, Jenkins arrived in a silver PT cruiser with a young blonde woman to the Thunderbird Motel in Hope, British Columbia, Mm. Canada. The car had Alberta license plates. They pulled up beside a dumpster rather than beside the rooms. 
The hotel manager thought this was strange and kind of was keeping an eye on them. Jenkins stayed in the car while a young woman paid cash for three nights accommodation. I didn't even know that they were doing that anymore. I thought you had to have a credit card and ID and yeah, things like I did that. that. I think at like the shadier places you can do that, but I, I've never been anywhere where you didn't have to give ID and a credit card. So the manager described the woman as attractive, about 20 to th- 25 to 30 years old and very calm, making small talk while registering. The guest in the room next door said the woman stayed for about 20 minutes with Jenkins and then left the motel. This later proved to be his half-sister, Elena Jenkins. The manager saw Jenkins walking outside the motel the same day and said he looked exhausted and later acknowledged that he was not recognizable from the pictures that he had seen on television of this Mm. gentleman. August 23rd, the couple had failed to check out. Having noticed very little activity over the weekend, motel managers said he decided to check on the room. And at that point, they found Jenkins' dead body. He had apparently killed himself. It was hanging from a clothes rack by a belt. No suicide note was found in the motel. Police found a one-page suicide note saved on his computer titled Last Will and Testament, and that was dated August 20th, 2009. Very, very interesting. I know that in the aftermath of this, VH1 pulled all the episodes and pretty much erased this show, did not release the remaining episodes that were due, and pretty much ensured that it would not even run in reruns either. Oh my gosh. There was actually a lawsuit underway as well um, with respect to the company that did the background check on on Jenkins because it subsequently emerged that Jenkins had not only been charged with assaulting Fiore, but had been convicted two years earlier for assaulting another woman in Calgary. So he was Canadian. The latter incident had not been disclosed to either VH1 or, or the producers of Megan Wants a Millionaire. So the, the company that produced the show said, hey, we, we wouldn't have let this guy on here if we knew about these incidents, but he mm-hmm. still somehow managed to make it on this show. So the company... I bet, like, it was just a U.S. Uh, background check. But essentially, the company that had was hired to do the background checks claimed that they had contracted out the Canadian part of the background checks because they didn't do the, those with their own company. And then they sued the company that they contracted out for the background checks for breach of contract, saying that they should have been able to tell them about the Canadian convictions. And then the company that was sued won another lawsuit against Viacom, NBC, and ABC as a result of damage to its reputation. And they won that suit. Oh, wow. So the day after Jenkins' death, BH1 officially announced the show was canceled and it would not run the third season of I Love Money, which Jenkins Jenkins reportedly won. Okay, when did they get married? They were married in March 18, 2009 was when the pair pair was married. And then he So they met the 16th and then she was murdered a month later? August. Oh, August. Oh, okay. So what, six months later? Yeah. Five months later. So you're married like five or six months before he ended up killing her. As a side note, some of the sources claimed that the two had gotten married so quickly that in two days because he wanted his green card. He was a Canadian citizen. So there was some speculation that that was the the reason they had gotten married so rapidly and that it was also the incentive for him to kill her because he did not want to lose that opportunity and she wanted out of the marriage either by annulment or divorce or whatever. So that would have been some of the incentive behind the murder. But that was, I only saw one source that listed that as the reason. But it also helped make a whole lot more sense out of this case in the event that she wanted out of the marriage and why he did what he did. 
This guy sounds like a real piece of work. Is it just me? Yeah. And if you see pictures well, of him, he just looks so, like, freaking yeah. crazy and weird. Well, if you remember when we were talking about this, I asked you, I was like, is this the MMA guy? And you were like, I don't think so. And I was like, oh, I think it's just because he looks like he would be really into MMA. He does. <laughs> he has that kind of crazy yeah. look about him. Like, that crazy look in his yeah. eye that just seems really shady and suspicious. And this poor girl obviously picked the wrong one because his ass yeah. was clearly crazy, temperamental, anger issues, and extremely violent. Well, and his dad also doesn't sound like a super great winner, blaming no. it on her. It seems as though he tried to justify his son uh-huh. doing any number of violent acts, which is disgusting. He needs to be punched yeah. in the face. <laughs> Have a little of his own medicine. So yeah. I think this case, from the research that I did and from what I was looking at online, there really is no clear-cut determination of when this murder actually happened. They believe it happened a few hours before she was found, but they don't really have any conclusive proof that that was the case. And because he killed himself, this pretty much ended the investigation. They concluded that he killed her and that was it. It doesn't sound as though they did a whole lot of research after that to try to pin down the details on this, which is kind of unfortunate because I I find it very interesting and I want to know what happened and I want to know what caused this. that also makes sense, though, because that costs money and resources and, and man hours to do that kind of a thing. And if you already have closed the case because you already know who did it, basically, and you're not going to go to trial, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to spend those resources and man hours when you have other stuff coming down the pike. Did he kill her in San Diego? Did he kill her in L.A.? Like, where did he kill well, her? Right. So we're, we're talking about L.A., Orange County, and San Diego counties. And then there's three police departments involved, and actually four. You got Washington State, you got the Royal Mounted Police, you got San Diego Police, and you've got Los Angeles Orange County Police that are all involved in this. And probably the FBI is involved in some way because it crossed state lines and country borders. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, There is not a ton of information available about this gentleman and his motivations and incentives and his past, which is quite frightening. There's a a little bit about her, but even then, this this case is, is pretty slim at best when it comes to research stuff, which is why I was going to use it as sort of a minor case to discuss while we were talking to the crime scene specialist, because I was going to ask her if this was something that she could see herself doing or that would potentially come up in their department, identifying someone by non-traditional means, like the breast implant serial numbers. Right. I think um, they probably have non-traditional means that they've used, but I think it's probably like more of the typical ones, like tattoos and piercings and stuff like that. And I wonder how the medical examiner came to that point. He was like, hey, she's got a nice rack. Wait a minute. (laughs) Well, he probably didn't say that. But um, back in the day, I taught uh, between my my bachelor's and my master's, I taught anatomy lab. And it was a cadaver lab. Mm -hmm. And we didn't actually do any of the dissection that was for the medical students. But we taught from the bodies that had already been dissected and things like that. And we actually got a donor who had breast implants. Wow. And so, yeah, so that was really interesting. And so they actually let me and like some of the other teachers or whatever, watch the like dissection of that part and like how they would like dissect the the implant out and stuff like that. So I actually got to see that part. So that was really interesting, but it's not, I mean, it's certainly something that is um, pretty obvious pretty quickly. When, when you have a, a donor with or a body with breast implants. 
Right. Well, I get that that's obvious, but is it necessarily obvious to think to look for a serial number on a breast implant? Yeah, I think so, because they obviously they have them because if you think about like medical malpractice insurance stuff, like that would be a, probably a situation when that's more common because mm-hmm. they would need to identify either the manufacturer or the ingredients or the physician that implanted them or any number of things. So, yeah, I think that's probably pretty well recorded. You would just, it would just not be a typical place for a medical examiner to look. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what do you, what do you have for us today? Oh boy. Okay. So we're going to talk about Rebecca Zahal and the Spreckles Mansion case in Coronado, California. So this is another so, famous San Diego case that's gotten a lot of media yeah. attention, perhaps quite a bit more than the Jasmine Fiore case, but go ahead. Yeah. This case is, I actually have, I used to work on Coronado Island and I have seen this house and the pictures that you see from when this happened, and this happened in 2011, the house is completely different and the owner moved out of the house and the new owners have redone the front of it and the landscaping and stuff. So there's a lot of trees that, that cover kind of the front of the house now for obvious reasons, because you can find that it's a famous mansion and you can find the address anywhere online. So it is on Ocean Drive in in Coronado. So it's basically right on the beachfront. It's across from the Hotel Del Coronado. And if you're not familiar with Coronado, it's one of the wealthiest zip codes in the country. And it has a very, very low crime rate. I think it's like the lowest in San Diego County. So it's very wealthy and affluent and, and a relatively safe place. And this is also where there's two Navy bases on, San, on Coronado, too. All right, so Coronado is a resort city located in San Diego County, California, across the bay from downtown San Diego. It was founded in 1880s and incorporated in 1890. Its population was about 24,000 during the 2010 census. It lies on an island connected to the mainland by a tombolo called the Silver Strand, so a very small strip of man-made land. Yeah, you wouldn't really call it an island. Yeah, So Coronado is Spanish for the crowned one. It is nicknamed the crown city. So there is the Naval Amphibious Base on Coronado, which is where Naval Special Warfare is. So that's your Navy SEALs. And then they have the Naval Air Station Coronado. And that's the big, the bigger base on Coronado. So technically it's not really an island. It's a peninsula. No, it's not. Because it's tied by that that strand. Yeah. But the city has a total... Oh, go ahead. The city itself has a total uh, area of about 32.7 square miles. But it really is a unique place. It's a small island, not very densely populated, but it has a very different feel from the rest of San Diego. So if you're ever in the San Diego area, go check out Coronado. It's a beautiful little place to visit. So historically speaking, the Spreckles Mansion is one of two different mansions that were created Somewhat similarly, one of the Spreckles mansions, quote-unquote, was built in San Francisco, and it's located on 2080 Washington Street in San Francisco. It is currently the home of romance novelist Danielle Steele. The Coronado counterpart is on 1043 Ocean Boulevard in Coronado, California. The San Francisco mansion was designed and created for the Spreckles Sugar Company heir, Adolph B. Spreckles. And then the Coronado mansion was designed and created for John D. Spreckles, also heir to the Spreckles Sugar Company fortune. Now back to the story. So... 
this house is, is obviously a very famous house, and it was owned at the time by Jonah Shacknai. So he was a CEO of a pharmaceutical company, and he lived there with his son, Max, and Rebecca Zahau moved in with them, and, and uh, they were dating. Jonah and, and Rebecca were dating at the time that this all happened. So Rebecca was born in Burma, and she had moved to the States uh, when she was younger via Germany. She worked as a surgical technician. So basically, the timeline of the story is Rebecca and Max, the son, were at the mansion alone during the day. And somehow Max fell from the second story of the home onto over the first over the second story banister and landed on the first floor. And he had injuries to his spinal cord and facial bones. And the spinal cord injury affected his heart rate and breathing. So Rebecca said she was in the bathroom at the time and she heard him fall. And her, Rebecca's teenage sister actually was also at the house at the time. And that's who called 911. The sister was the one that called 911. Correct. Yeah. And so he was not breathing and was unresponsive and was taken to Children's Hospital. His dad, Jonah, immediately is going to the hospital and staying at the hospital with his son. And he had been divorced from his wife, uh, Max's mom. And Max's mom, I don't know if she lived in San Diego or if she came into town, but I think she may have lived in the San Diego. But she also went to the hotel that night. And then you had Jonah's brother, Adam, come to San Diego also to stay with the family. And he ends up staying at the guest house of the Spreckles mansion. Max's accident happened on July 11th, 2011. And on July 12th, Adam Shacknai, Jonah's brother, calls 911 to report that Rebecca has hung herself. She has, and, and there's pictures online, you can't see anything too, too graphic, but so there is, the way this house is designed, there's like a courtyard area in the middle of it. And in one of the guest rooms, not the guest house, that's a separate building, the guest room, there is a balcony that opens up onto into this courtyard. And that is supposedly where she hung herself. So she was found with her, she was found nude, uh, and she had her feet bound and her wrists and her hands were bound behind her. And okay. then she was, and then she supposedly hung herself. So who number one hangs suicide, himself naked and number two binds their feet and hands before they commit suicide. Now, I don't know how common it is to commit suicide naked, but I certainly think it's uncommon to commit suicide outside naked with your hands bound and feet. <laughs> well, of course that's, that's of course that, yeah, we're going to get into all of that, but just the idea, because it's a courtyard. This is an open area. This is outside. There's pictures taken from above where you can see still the scene. She is blurred out, but this is outside. So it's bizarre from the jump. So by the time the police and ambulance gets there, Adam has already cut her down. So, so he's messed with the crime the scene. Ground. He's messed yeah, with so the crime scene. So there's a knife on the ground. She's on the ground. And... When, when they go and look at the room, there's also a knife that has blood on it in the room. That, and then there is a note painted on the door with black paint that said, 
she saved him. Can you save her? So this is written in the third person. And I've seen some places, I don't know how, I haven't seen this from like a firsthand report from the autopsy or whatever, but I have seen some places that she had black paint on her nipples too. The fuck? Immediately, Coronado police is like, we... This is outside of our area. So they call in San Diego County Sheriff's Department. And the Sheriff's Department rules it a suicide. Really? <laughs> they rule a suicide. They're like, we don't want to, so, we don't really want to do any more work today. We're already fully booked and, and we have a lot of cases already. So we're just going to go ahead and call this one a suicide. Right. Here's, here's from Wikipedia. On the morning of July 13th, so this is the next day in an interview, at roughly 6.45 a.m., Adam stated that he found Zahao's nude body hanging from a balcony with her wrists and ankles bound and her hands behind her back. Zahao was gagged with a blue long sleeve t-shirt wrapped around her head with the sleeves double knotted and stuffed into her mouth. Okay. There was and also yet another it, thing. Who the fuck does that when they commit suicide? No one. There was also what appeared to be tape residue on her legs. So Adam called 911 at 648 and, oh, I'm sorry. July 13th, the morning of July 13th is when he finds her. So there's a day in between. July 11th is Max's accident. July 13th is when he finds her that morning. So she supposedly did it on the 12th. Or or overnight, yeah. So Adam called 911 at 6.48 a.m. And he sent a text message to his his brother to inform him of the news. Where was his brother? His brother was at the hospital with his son. Okay, so the son is still alive. Son is still alive at this point. Okay. So he cut down Zahao's body before the police arrived. Medics attempted to revive her, but pronounced her dead at the scene. Police initiated forensic and toxicology testing on her body as part of an autopsy to determine the cause of death. Speculations of foul play began early on in the case. However, investigators were unable to find any other DNA at the scene besides Zahao's. There was no DNA on the rope, no DNA on the knife. There were no fingerprints on any of that. There were, there were uh, no fingerprints on the, the paintbrush handle, and there were no fingerprints on the knife that he used to cut her down, not even his. So he clearly wiped that shit off. So <laughs> there's, there's no fingerprints. There's no usable fingerprints, and there's no DNA on the rope. So on September 2nd, the San Diego Sher- County Sheriff's Department formally announced their finding that Zahal committed suicide. That's incredible to me. That's absolutely incredible. Right. So immediately, like the first time, because I remember when this happened, this was right before I moved to San Diego, like months before I moved to San Diego. So I remember this happening and following the case and just thinking, how in the world? Right. How in the world do you get to suicide? It just seems insane. I am a crime scene specialist and I'm responding to a scene with a suspected suicide and I see hands tied behind your back. I'm not... I'm immediately wondering right. and you have to, how do you, how do you not? So let's talk about some of the evidence from the autopsy. So her autopsy results revealed four instances of head trauma. And there's various theories about this head trauma. The San Diego medical examiner said that because there was evidence that she went over the balcony in a non-vertical position, she may have struck her head on the balcony on the way down, which even just a picture is kind of, Banana sandwiches. I mean, it just doesn't really make any sense. No. So, Werner Spitz is an expert witness who testified during the trial of Casey Anthony. That's a whole other bear of a case. So, he said it was a possibility that she committed suicide, stating 
when the body first dropped, she doesn't necessarily jump to her death. So she would drop directly downward and she could easily hit the side of the structure from which she is hanging. However, he noted that to draw stronger conclusions, he would have preferred to see what the body looked like before the wrist bindings were removed. And forensic consultant Dr. Maurice Godwin expressed doubt, stating the chances of bumping into the railing going over the balcony and hitting your head four times is highly unlikely. Holy fuck. I don't get how that... And granted, let's, you know, we got to take a look, a step back because... In, in many of these instances, we don't have all the information. Clearly, the police department only releases to the media a very limited amount of information about these cases. So we clearly do not have 100% of the evidence in this case to look at. But from what we do have, this sounds completely, insanely not suicide to me. Like, so obviously not suicide. <laughs> I mean, in my non-professional, non-police person viewpoint, because I'm not a police person, I'm not a crime scene investigator, I'm just an attorney and a writer and a researcher. But in my limited (laughs) viewpoint, this seems insanely obvious that it's not a suicide. Family members thought the same thing. Wow. So they expressed suspicions for why Zahao's hands and feet were bound. And in a courtroom, they brought in a... I believe she worked in law. She was in law enforcement. I believe she was a police officer who was about her same height and weight. So from what I understand, she was five, three. I know she was five, three Rebecca Zaha was, and I believe she weighed around a hundred pounds. I haven't confirmed that. So she was tiny. I believe she was small. So they brought in a law enforcement officer about her same height and weight. And they demonstrated how she would be able to tie her hands and feet in the same manner. But why would she do that? Well, not, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know that that's really even the purpose of, of that question. Initially, you're just trying to figure out if she could do it, right? So they're saying she could do it. This is uh, somebody that practiced to do this in court. You know, did Rebecca, is this something Rebecca sat around and practiced how to do? Because this, because this law enforcement officer that did this had practice at this because she had to show that she could do it. So she had to practice it a few times. Yeah. So are we saying she sat around and practiced Tying her suicide method? They also brought in a dummy with her same dimensions and they showed basically how it would fall because the rope that she hung herself with was tied to the bedpost of the bed that was in the room. And when they responded to the scene that the bed had been moved seven feet forward. So it was as her weight had moved the bed seven feet forward. So they brought in this dummy with her same height and weight dimensions and threw it over a balcony, and they showed basically that the bed could move a certain distance or whatever. Basically, they're showing that this is possible that she could have committed suicide, right? But the family obviously was not satisfied with the initial results from the county, so they hired their own forensic pathologist to re-examine the body, and they had Wait, her exhumed. when you say the family, her family or Rebecca's. his his family? Rebecca's, Rebecca's yeah. Okay. So Rebecca's family, they, they paid for a second autopsy, and that was conducted by Dr. Cyril Wecht from the San Diego Union-Tribune website about this civil trial, because they did sue, or they, yeah, they did sue uh, Adam. The family of Rebecca's house sued Adam Shacknai for responsibility in civil court for responsibility for Rebecca's murder or death. So they think that Adam killed her. How could you not? <laughs> he was the only one there, right? So Dr. Cyril Wecht 
found, and this is from a slideshow that was in the San Diego Union Tribune of the cross-examination of Dr. Cyril Wack. The cervical vertebrae, the first seven vertebrae in our spinal column, beginning at the base of the skull, showed no damage, either by way of fracture or dislocation. Also, there was no damage to the delicate muscles, ligaments, and tendons that lie on the front, back, and sides of the vertebral column. There was all of that damage and force in the front of her neck and not even one drop of blood or tear or disruption of any soft tissues in the rear. How can that be when there are such severe injuries to the front of the neck? I want to make it clear that I'm not saying she was manually strangled, but it's oh. a definite possibility that she was strangled first and then hanged. Oh. At this point, I cannot say that Rebecca Zahau's death was a suicide, nor can I say it was a homicide. What I can and will say is that this case cries out for more investigation. Wow. So that is from the, the forensic pathologist. And another article from the San Diego Tribune actually has somebody that I wish I'd found this article sooner because I really would love to reach out for this person. Dr. James Kent, who is a forensic kinesiologist, which is what I want to do. So he, instead of just focusing on biomechanics, he focuses on all of it, primarily biomechanics, but physiology and other stuff like that. He said that the San Diego Union Tribune describes him as an expert in how the human body moves, testified on Tuesday that according to his mathematical calculations, it would be nearly impossible for her to tip herself over a balcony that was more than half her height. So she would have to fall forward onto the railing. She wouldn't go over because her center of gravity is below the railing. But not only that, hands she doesn't exhibit the signs and the damage to her neck that she would typically have if she, was, if she had hung herself. And so we're going to get into that in a second, too. So with her hands behind her, she's in no position to propel herself, no way to do anything but sit there. So what he's saying is with her hands behind her back, she can't swing her arms like she would need to to hop over this thing. So basically, she just needs to essentially try and put your arms by your side and keep your feet together and see how high you can jump and see if that would take you about three feet in the air because it wouldn't. (laughs) So ridiculous. And so he said that if Zahau managed to fall freely rather than being lowered by another person, the sudden tension of the noose around her neck could have decapitated her. And now on cross-examination. So the defense attorney on cross-examination questions his calculations on how Zahau might have fallen and what her injuries would have been, he found an error in the expert's math on the force of her fall, which Kent acknowledged. The defense attorney said that if Zahau had leaned down over the balcony edge to drop, the distance she fell would have been somewhat less than what investigators reported as nine feet, two inches from the top of the railing to the end of her rope at her neck. So they said that if she were to jump over the railing, she would have fallen about nine feet. He's saying if she were to hop up to the balcony and lean forward, she would have fallen maybe seven feet or six feet. And with the distance change, the calculations on the amount of force on her neck and the severity of her injuries would also change. I would argue as somebody who actually does want to do exactly what this Dr. Kent is doing, that because her center of gravity is changing, that would actually still produce a large amount of force on her neck when she's actually changing because she's changing the orientation uh, she's not falling feet first anymore. She's tum- tumbling over head first and then swinging around. So it would have so created have... significantly more damage or it would have freaking decapitated her. I don't know that it would have created more damage, but I don't think it would have been less, so much less that you wouldn't have any fractures of the cervical vertebrae. Right. So I've got three textbooks open here uh, talking about the force it requires to, for the cervical vertebrae to fail in this kind of movement. 
and we're looking at about 250 pounds of force pulling directly upward, right? Wow. And so I pulled some other articles on, so I pulled some other articles looking at hanging versus manual strangulation, because that's the argument, right? Right. And they found that in, one article found that in 70% of their cases that they looked at, they found cervical fractures, cervical spine fractures. Now, remember, 70%. said 67.6 to be exact. And remember that her, the serial wet court said that she had no damage to her cervical spine. This sounds to me like she was placed there and didn't hang herself. She, to me, even if she had been murdered, she had been manually strangulated, uh, and, and then he put the rope around her neck in the bedroom and dropped her, she still would have had significant damage to her neck. So you don't think he dropped her? You think he placed her no. that way? Yeah. That is so interesting. Yeah, that's what I think. So you think he killed her and then placed her body in that position? Like maybe they were doing yeah. some kind of freaky-deaky rope tie-up uh, S&M kind of shit and he killed her accidentally or he killed her on purpose because she killed the kid? I, so I think, I think, I don't think it was like anything consensual BDSM. And I have heard, again, unconfirmed second, third-hand source that he was on his phone that night that she died, that he was looking up Asian BDSM pornography. Oh. Now, again, that's not me saying that I have found that anywhere. I have heard it from another podcast. I'm not going to blow them up, but they do do pretty good research. So So, this guy was into some freaky deaky shit. It got a little wild. He killed her accidentally and then was like, oh, shit, I better cover this up. No, I I think it I don't think it was an accident. I think he murdered her because this is this is July 13th on July 16th. Max dies from as a result of his injuries from the fall. So there, what San Diego County is saying is that she was so devastated over the severity of Max's injuries that ultimately resulted in his, in his death that she committed suicide. A big part of that theory is this kind of notion in Asian communities of committing suicide, like having an honorable death, right? Like seppuku or seppuku, uh. I think is what it's called. But that's Japanese, and she's Burmese. Yeah. And I've not heard that in any other culture but Japanese. So I think there's some kind of bias based on her background. Because she's Asian. That's fucking ridiculous. Right. It's a very, very fascinating case. And the Zahao family, like I said, they sued Adam Shacknai for wrongful death. And they sued him for $10 million. And a jury actually did find him responsible for her death and what? awarded the family $5 million. OMG. When was that? Yeah, that was 2014, 2015, maybe. No, that was 16 because I think I was not in San Diego anymore. Well, so he was found civilly responsible. 18, 2018, April of last year. Fucking he was found recent. civilly responsible, which if you want to get into it, OJ also was found civilly liable for Nicole Brown Simpson's death. Let me just make this clear to the listeners. The difference in burden of proof between a civil trial and a criminal trial. Yeah. A civil trial burden of proof is more likely than not. So 51% likely that that person did it, they can get a reward or an award and say that that person did it. A criminal trial is a different burden of proof. 
So rather than a 50%, it has to be all or nothing sort of a situation in a criminal trial. It is not more likely than not. It is this person either did it or didn't do it, and it has to be sort of a 100% kind of a thing. So beyond a reasonable doubt. Exactly. That is why it is easier to get a civil conviction on a case rather than a criminal conviction. Right, and there has been no criminal trial in this case. Because San Diego they... County still refuses to reopen the case. Oh my God. So that's they where we are now. They still it was suicide. So they, they yep. closed the case. They said it's suicide. They refused to reopen it. And that's where we're at now. Despite, that's, where, that's where we've been since September 2nd, 2011. They have not changed. Despite all that's happened, despite the convictions, despite or the, the mm -hmm. civil award, they're like, we're yep. done. Yep. And the family, obviously, and they have attorneys for them petitioning the county to reopen this investigation because how can you clearly, how can you so clearly say that this is suicide. And so in the interest of providing the, you know, opposite argument, I did look up some statistics on suicide and it is the suicide in general is the second leading cause of death, according to the CDC in America. However, suicide by hanging, strangulation and suffocation, intentional hanging, strangulation or suffocation is, is pretty rare when you're talking about in terms of all deaths. It's the number one is, is firearm obviously. In these results from 2016 from the CDC, suicide, intentional self-harm by hanging, strangulation, suffocation accounted for 11,642 deaths. 2,591 of those were women. So it's very rare for women. And it's probably even and they more also, rare for their hands and feet to be bound and them to be naked. <laughs> incredibly rare. And so they even the CDC even has us broken down by race. And so if we're talking non-Hispanic, Asian, or Pacific Islander females, 204 of those 2,591. Incredible. So this is, it's very rare. It's very rare by method. It's very rare by, by race. And her family maintains that she was not depressed. She was um, very religious and believes I was a sin. She was a Christian. And so her family just does not believe, and I think they have every right to not believe that this was suicide. It just doesn't make any sense to me that this is suicide. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. But again, I think that there is some cultural bias as well. Asian right. female. But, and, and I do want to, I, I, I absolutely agree. I think that there is definitely the cult cultural bias, especially when you're talking about her death being because she was so distraught over Max's injury when remember he didn't even he hadn't died by the time she did this supposedly did this yeah she he was still alive yeah and and the, the thing about Adam supposedly looking up Asian BDSM pornography that night which okay let's say maybe it wasn't even that specific genre let's say it was just pornography so he flies into town because his brother his nephew his six-year-old nephew is gravely injured in the hospital and he's looking at pornography that night. That's a little hinky behavior. So you know what I mean? What do you think happened? Do you think he was pissed that she supposedly let this happen and he killed her in a fit of rage? Yeah, I think he held her responsible for Max's injury. The, the uncle held her responsible. The uncle did, yeah. Yeah, there's no evidence that Jonah was angry with her. There's no, there's no evidence that... The, that Max's mom was angry at her. There are reports that they didn't exactly get along, but I don't think that's completely unnatural when you are living with hers. You know what I mean? Like you're living with her ex-husband and her own son. Like that's their household now. So I don't think that's that's an unnatural thing. And I don't think that means anything about uh, any kind of motive that she would have. There's no evidence to, to 
to show that there's no, there's also no evidence to show that, that Adam was even angry with her. You know, there's just so little evidence in the way of motive for any of it, but that's, that's what I would suspect is that he held her responsible. And one of the things is uncle there was, so held there was responsible. Nice, it's not even the father correct. of the child, right? Right. Just seems right. so stupid. And there's one other thing that I didn't mention, and this is kind of unclear. There was a knife that was in the bedroom that did have her blood on it. But she doesn't have any injuries. She, she was, no, she didn't have any injuries, but she was menstruating at the oh. time. So there's some speculation maybe this was used in a sexual assault. Whoa. But I don't know that that has been determined in any way. Wow. It's just a lot mm-hmm. of crazy factors involved in this one. It just, I think like no matter how you look at it, for them to have said four months, five months after that this is suicide and they're not even going to go back and look at it. Yeah. It's just laziness or they're hiding it's, it's, something. It's just crazy. I don't, you know, I don't understand it. I, so, and supposedly Adam is like a fish, fisher, fisherman boat captain or something. Like he doesn't have, Adam doesn't have the money that his brother has. So how's so he going to pay $5 million? Appealed, they've appealed it and I don't know where that stands now, but yeah. Well, since it's so recent, obviously that hasn't played out yet. Right. So if you're ever in Coronado, go check out the Spreckles Mansion. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to send you those pictures so we can post because I did. I have pictures of the house that I took and you can see how different it is from when this happened and when I, because I took the pictures in 2016. Wow. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Good cases mm-hmm. today. But I do want to say, I want to throw this in there just at the very end. If you or somebody you know is struggling with suicide ideation or depression, you can call the National Suicide Hotline 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's available and anonymous to anybody. And that phone number is 1-800-273-8255. We will post that in the show notes as well. I still have all the stuff from we did an episode on Hypochondriac's Almanac on depression. Okay. So we posted all that stuff then, so I still have it. But this is the point where we say so long, farewell, goodbye. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our little podcast. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please send us an email. We are at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. Darcy, social media. We are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and the Instagrams. Check us out. Join us. Like our pictures. Write to us. Do anything you want there. We're happy to talk Give to people. Give us a follow. Let's interact. Right. We're happy to, fo- to follow you back if you follow us too. So um, please check us out there. And please join us again next week when we talk more about wacky, weird, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real. And always live your best life. Bye. Bye.